Oh, good morning. It's great to uh, see you all again. And thank you, brother, for uh, praying for me. You sound like uh, a fellow by the name of Alistair Begg, who's one of my favourite preachers. Alistair Begg's a wonderful Scotsman. And uh, so I just appreciate it being prayed for in that way. <laughs> How are we going with the challenge? Yeah. Remember the challenge from last week? What was the challenge? Yes. Three times. Well done. So the challenge was to try and read through the letter of Ephesians in one sitting about 20 times between now and the middle of November. And uh, the other challenge was to start writing it out. So that's a, that's a good thing to do as well. I hope you've been blessed by that. And I really encourage you, if you haven't started the process, have a go. There's a, um, actually, you can get, this is a really handy tool. It's uh, the, the book of Ephesians, or the letter of Ephesians, in a single volume. So you have the text on one side, and you have a journal on the other side. So um, I don't know if the leadership's interested, I can put you on to a source for, for getting hold of these. Uh, it's, a, it's a really uh, good little tool as you study through God's Word together. Okay, this morning we're going to be in Ephesians 4. Uh, so if you've got your Bibles, turn to Ephesians 4. We're going to continue looking at what it means to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. And uh, as I said last week, Ephesians 4 is a real hinge point. real hinge point in this letter moves from theology to practice. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because uh, in the, the world in which we live, this world is full of an immense variety and diversity. You know, for instance, I'm a New Zealander. I'm a all-black supporter. And I do not understand AFL. So there is a beautiful diversity and yet unity, right, in that. But we live in a world full of variety and diversity. There's many gifts and there are many talents on display. We've seen some of that this morning. How often do we marvel at a musician? I personally marvel at the musician that can play by ear. I just can't understand that. How that you can actually sit at a piano without a sheet of music and just play the melody. It's an incredible gift. Or we look at athletes who are gifted in certain disciplines, whether it's a high jump or whether it's sprinting or whether it's on the rugby field or in the, on the football field. It may be a great artist, a great chef, or a variety of just everyday gifts that we marvel at as we're cared for by doctors, by nurses, by whoever it may be. We live in a, a world full of variety and diversity. And it's the same within the church. We also have many gifted people. And so why is that? It's because God is the giver of all spiritual gifts. According to 1 Corinthians 12.7 and 1 Corinthians 14.1, every believer has at least one spiritual gift. 
Some have more than one. But every believer is granted a spiritual gift, and we'll learn that today as we look through Ephesians 4 as well. Spiritual gifts are given when we, we come to faith in Christ. And uh, they're used to fulfill God's calling within our lives. They're used to fulfill God's calling in our lives and to serve one another in love. These gifts are varied, but all gifts are equal, of equal importance. And they're designed to build up the body of Christ, as we will see today in Ephesians 4. Gifts are not given for one's own edification, but for the common good of God's people. And all gifts are meant to give glory to the giver. All gifts are meant to glorify God. Because God is the one who has so lavishly poured them out. These gifts aren't mystical, they're not impractical, they're not subjective, and their power comes from the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit's the one who, as we've been learning, grabs hold of our hearts and transforms us, and it's the same with gifts. Therefore, if I were to define spiritual gifts, I would define it this way. It's a God-given ability that enables a believer to perform a particular function in the body of Christ with effectiveness and ease for the glory of God alone. I'll redefine that for you. It's the God-given ability that enables a believer to perform a function within this body with effectiveness and ease for the glory of God alone. Now let's read today's text. If you turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to start at uh, verse 7 and read through to verse 16. And remember this is the hinge point, as I've said before, this is the hinge point of the letter. Last week we looked at what it means meant to be in a walk of unity. And we saw the model of the Trinity as the, the example of unity, and yet the instruction was given to the believers at Ephesus that they, in humility and gentleness, with patience, needed to bear one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. That's how the walk was to be measured. And as part of this, this process, now Paul was starting to, to explode it up a little bit further. He says, if you want to, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling, you've got to realise that gifts are given in the confines of, of Christ's body, his church. And this diversity of gifts are given for your maturity, with the sole goal of maturing you. So let's read verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had also needed to descend into the lower regions, the earth. 
For who descended is the one who also ascended far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So that we may not be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up into every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. You see, right from the start in these verses, this diversity of gifts for the maturity of the church. If you want to place a a theme across these verses, this is what it's about. Christ gives a diversity of gifts for the maturing of the church. He moves from the theme of unity as seen in verses 1 to 6 to diversity and then to maturity. Verse 7 tells us that each believer is given gifts. But grace was given to each one of us. This is a what we know as a divine gift. It comes from Christ himself as the end of the, the verse tells us. And it's the, the gift of grace. Now this is not your standard meaning for the gift of grace because if I say God has given you grace, what would you normally say? That's the gift of salvation, right? You go back to Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 and say, well, yeah, this is the grace gift. For By grace I have been saved through faith. Here's a different context. This grace is tied to the ministry of grace. It's not a saving or sanctifying grace, but as we'll see as we go down through this uh, section, especially into uh, especially into verse 12 we'll see that these gifts are giving for the work of the ministry so the, the grace gift is a ministry grace not a saving or sanctifying grace but a gift of ministry every believer has a grace gift for ministry according to this passage It's also interesting that this gift is measured. See, later in the the part of the verse here, verse 7, according to the measure of Christ's gift. So in some ways it's limited. It's limited by Christ. The amount of gift is limited by Him. It is measured and distributed through Christ. Christ is the head of the church and He empowers the function of the church through this measured gift of grace. See, Christ gives each gift. He is the gift giver. And he also determines the amount of each gift. 
This is also seen in Romans chapter 12. If you've got your Bibles, turn to Romans 12 and we'll just read a couple of verses out of Romans. Romans 12 verses uh, 6 to 8 has a very similar feel to Ephesians 4. Romans 12, I'll start at verse 4 actually. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we through many are one body in Christ and individually members of one body. All that is saying is that we are one, right? We are multiple but we're one. We are diverse but we're together. That's what that verse is telling us. But verse 6 is interesting. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. It's exactly what Paul is saying in Ephesians chapter 4 to these Ephesian believers. There is a multiple of gifts, but these gifts are from Christ. In Romans, he, he develops the list a little bit further. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service and our servicing, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. But the point there is there's multiple gifts for the body to function correctly. And it's Christ who is giving the gifts. You see from the section of Romans and the unfolding idea in Ephesians, the gifts that Christ gives are diverse. Because they're given to each one of us. And they're multifaceted. And they're there to build. Now what uh, Paul does here to to these folks at Ephesus, he, he states this, right? States the fact. These gifts come from Christ. Every one of you has a gift. And then he substantiates the fact by going back to the Old Testament. And he grabs a, a quote from Psalm 68, verse 18. That's what we read in, in verse 8. Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now the wise amongst you will go back to Psalm 68, and you'd read Psalm 68. Because it's really important when, when a, like Paul, when he quotes the Old Testament, he does it for a purpose. He'll take a, a psalm like Psalm 68 and he will assume that the congregation knows the, the context of that entire psalm. He just takes one verse out of it. But he will assume that the, the, the congregation will know the whole psalm. It would be like you, you and me. I was saying to you, you as a congregation, if I quoted John 3.16, right? A well-known verse. I'd imagine most of you, you know the context of that verse. Who was Jesus talking to? Why did this summary statement all of a sudden come through? You would understand that. It's the same here. But the issue you have here is he doesn't quote Psalm 68 word perfect. This is what we have. In Psalm 68, 18, you ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious. So you see the slight difference. We have Psalm 68 talks about a receiving of a gift from men. Ephesians 4, 8, we have 
uh, talking about giving gifts to men. So what's Paul done here? Why has he used this? And what's the point? Well, I think what you've got to do is you've got to consider the theology of the whole psalm first. Psalm 68, you consider that theology and the impact of that psalm. See, the, the overarching message of Psalm 68 is that God is to be praised as the one who, who through his past acts of deliverance and provision for his people, gives great confidence of his continuing care for his people. If you read Psalm 68, that's what it's about. Particularly verse 18 in, in, in the Old Testament is about the person of the victorious king. And this relates to God ascending Zion in triumph over his enemies and receiving uh, from the submissive people congratulatory gifts. Because he is king, he's a, it's like a triumph. It's like a going towards Zion and receiving gifts from grateful people. That's the context of Psalm 68. What Paul does here, he uses the principle of this theology about, about God being the one who's praised because he is delivered and he draws an analogy between that, that time and that context and what's happening uh, for the Ephesian believers. Because in Ephesians we see that Christ as the giver of gifts to each believer and to the church, that Jesus is the bestower of gifts for ministry within the church. So just as in Psalm 68 where we see God as the victorious king who receives gifts from men, we see... Paul's align this and give it a Christological, gives it a view of Christ. Christ is the giver of gifts and he gives gifts to men. And to further help the folks here understand this, he gives an interpretation. So verse 9 and 10 is his interpretation of what he's meaning. And why he uses a psalm. See, Christ ascends and descends, why? At the end of verse 10, so that he might fill all things. That's the key. So that Christ may fill all things. That's why he ascends and descends. But naturally, the question is what does it mean by him ascending and descending? What does that mean? There's three ways of potentially understanding this. You could say it was Christ's uh, descent into Hades, into hell. I think contextually that's a poor view. There's nothing in the context of Ephesians that draws us to that conclusion. You could say that Christ's descent is the, the incarnation where he came to earth, where he became man, full of grace and truth. Or you could say the descent relates to the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And then you've got to wrestle with, well, how does that relate to Christ? 
since the, the subject of this is Christ. So the last two options here, either Christ's descent at the Incarnation or the descent of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, have some merit. See, on the view of the Incarnation, we, we read right throughout the, the Gospels. This is a quite a common thing, isn't it? In the Gospel of John, you read on a couple of occasions there about Christ saying, well, I had to descend before I ascended. I had to come to earth, complete the work before I ascended to my Father. And then you have the famous passage in Philippians 2. And we'll just quickly look at that, Philippians 2. You know, have this mind among yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. And we found in a human form he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That explains the incarnation. That explains the the reason Christ had to descend to ascend. The second one the second view is about descent of the Spirit. And so perhaps in Ephesians 4 we're talking about the descent of the Spirit. I just want to work through that with you and then we can draw our conclusions. It's argued that it's the descent of the Spirit because it relates to the gifts of the Spirit. The whole portion of Scripture relates to the gifts of the Spirit. The application of Psalm 68 uh, to Christ's ascent and his distribution of gifts by the Spirit may well have been aided by uh, the view that uh, how the psalm was used in, in Judaism, actually. In Judaism, you have a whole series of festivals that go on right throughout the year to remember things. At the final festival of the year, the festival of Pentecost, or the Feast of Weeks. It was common by the time that Ephesians was written that in the, in the uh, liturgy of the synagogue they would relate this experience, Psalm 68 and Pentecost, to the giving of the law. And the readings for the day and the cycle of readings would always be Exodus 19 and 20 with the laws given, Numbers 17 and 18, along with Psalm 29 and 68. So there is a thought that uh, because of this link between uh, the Jewish synagogue and the birth of this church, that potentially this could be talking about the gifts given by the Spirit. That's what the the ascent is talking about. But not to confuse it, I just want to draw, I thought I'd tell you those two things. 
because it doesn't really matter which interpretation you take because the focus is and the thing that Paul is trying to make incredibly clear here is that Christ he sent is central to the giving of gifts. And the purpose of it is so that everything might be, he might fill all things. And this contextually works because of Ephesians 1. If you go back to Ephesians 1, you have these wonderful verses, Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. We had this wonderful prayer at the end of the first section. And it states this, And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is the body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is the key. For the church, Christ is everything. He fills everything. He is the saviour, he is the redeemer, and he is the gift giver. He bestows gifts. All powers, no matter what corner of the cosmos they may be in, are now conquered and have taken their place beneath Christ's feet. Christ is the all-powerful one who has conquered the enemies of the people of God in every corner of the universe. And it is Christ who gives gifts to his people a diverse range of gifts to enable them to worship, to enable them to serve one another, to enable the, the strength and the power of the church to be manifest in a world that is corrupt. And I think so often we miss this fact. We miss the fact that Christ is supreme and rules over all. And we can live in the power of that because he grants us gifts to realise that, recognise that and to serve one another in love. So now Paul turns in verse 11 and he further enhances what gifts are given to the church and he names five special gifts. And I believe there's two foundational gifts and three ongoing gifts and I'll explain that in a sec. See Christ gives gifts leaders to the church. He gifts apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds and teachers. We'll look at the first one, an apostle. It's widely acknowledged that if you look through scripture that if I say what is an apostle, there are three things that determine what an apostle is. An apostle is someone who has been a physical eyewitness of the resurrection of Christ. If you went to Acts chapter 2, you would see that. Secondly, an apostle is someone that's been personally appointed by the Lord. You also see that in Acts 1 and 2. And the third point is to authenticate and verify your apostleship. There was an appointment of miraculous signs that went along with your apostleship. Now this is not a common view today within churches. There's a view that the gift of apostle is ongoing. Some believe that it's still current. 
And this view operates on the premise that everything that happened in the early church ought to be expected and experienced in the church today. That's the premise. That's one side of the coin. The other side of the coin is the view which I probably take, or I do take, is that the office and gift of apostleship ceased with John the, with John the Apostle when he died in 95 AD. Now I think this is a, a reasonably important discussion because what is happening at the moment amongst uh, some denominations is we're, we're having something called a new apostolic reformation. started in 2001 and the founders of this reformation are saying that there's a momentous change in the redemptive plan of God and it's occurring at this time. It's widespread um, and the recognition that the office of apostleship was not just a phenomenon for the first couple of centuries of the church history but is also functioning in the body of Christ today. So we have this view out there that apostles are still there. By the way, you could join this council or coalition of apostles if you like. You can join for by paying a fee of $69 a month. Um, I actually yearly memberships for 350 And if you want to be an international apostle, you can be $450 for that one. And actually, as a married couple, it costs you 650 So sometimes you wonder about the heart of this, don't you, when you see that sort of stuff. Let's get back to the Bible and find out what the Bible says about this. And see, obviously, with that, if you wanted to be part of this new apostolic reformation, you you would have to authenticate your status as an apostle and you'd need signs and wonders attached to this. And you would probably have the gift of prophecy attached to this as well because you would consider that the canon's not closed and God can speak to you directly. So my view to summarise, you know, an apostle had to be a physical eyewitness, so how does that happen in 2018? Personally appointed by the Lord. Yeah, okay, we have Paul who had that apostle out of time and he had the road to Damascus experience, yes. But you need to be able to authenticate this by miracles and signs. Now I see there doesn't seem to be any apostles appointed after Paul. And I think anyone today can meet these qualifications. Um, and also in the context of Ephesians, if you go back to Ephesians chapter 2, it's very helpful. Because Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ being himself the chief cornerstone. Ephesians 2 verse 20. There's a foundational nature to these two gifts. So how can you build a foundation and then in uh, 2017 or 2018 start building the foundation again? The building's been built. It's being built. It's no longer foundational. It's had 2,000 years of wonderful, miraculous, transforming power of God's grace to build the church See, I think God's purpose in the history of redemption seems to have been to give apostles only at the beginning of the church aid to build this foundation. Similarly with prophets. The second part of Ephesians 4 tells us that uh, there's apostles and prophets. 
Once again, we're talking about New Testament prophets here. And so why why was there a gift of a prophecy in the New Testament? And potentially not today, why? Didn't have the full canon in Scripture. Didn't have God's word in its entirety as we have it now. The apostles were used to bring God's words to us. So therefore, when John wrote Revelation in AD 95, we read the back end of Revelation, the book is closed, right? Do not add to this prophecy. The canon is complete. So why is there a need for ongoing prophecy today? We have it all. We have it all. The next three gifts, evangelists, shepherds and pastors and teachers, are gifts that I believe remain for the church today. They're here. We, we, we know of evangelists. Evangelists is one who brings the good news. And I think Paul in, in here thinks of an evangelist as similar to apostles but without their authority because they have lacked a direct connection with the historical Jesus. The evangelists proclaim the message to which the apostles had been eye and ear witnesses. So today I have that opportunity. I can proclaim the message, the direct message to the apostles as eyewitnesses and ear witnesses of Christ. I can proclaim the beauties of Christ through his word. Fourthly, he had shepherds. Shepherds are given to, to shepherd the flock. You read in 1 Peter 5, 1-4, I won't read it here because we don't have time for it, but you see what the work of a shepherd is. Clearly linked to elders and pastors and uh, they are to shepherd without being authoritarian. They are to shepherd by setting example for the flock with their life and behaviour. And then the fifth gift for the equipping of the church is that of teachers. Those who teach God's word publicly, especially in the context of Ephesians here, we're talking about those who understand the first three chapters of this book. The doctrine, the beauty of our salvation. So these leaders are given for a couple of purposes as we see in verse 12 to equip the saints to equip the saints and what is the saints response to serve and to be equipped in the work of the ministry for the building up of the body the church so you see how this equipping works. As an evangelist, as a shepherd or pastor and as a teacher, equips the body so the body functions completely in the work of ministry, utilises the gifts that Christ has given so the body is built up. It's built up. And what type of building up are we talking here it's a building up into maturity. The triumphant Christ has given an appropriate measure of grace to each believer. Read that in verse 7. 
And among those he has gifted, Paul lists five groups especially equipped to prepare other believers for the work of ministry. The apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds and teachers. And as you see from the following verses, verses 12 to 16, those gifted in ministry of the word and those who they equip for ministry work together build up the body of Christ towards the end goal. The church is a body. We cannot function independently of one another. We cannot because Christ has given us gifts to function together towards maturity. What does maturity look like? Maturity looks like a unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. It's an ongoing process and it's for all. This is all are to attain a unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. It also in some ways acknowledges a particular body of doctrine. Now, the other time we have unity in this particular section was back up in, in um, verse 3 eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. And I believe, based on verse 5 of the previous section, that we have one faith. We're talking about a body of faith, and it's about what we know about Christ will unify us. And the result is that we mature. It says here to mature manhood. That's not an individual thing. This refers to the, the church, not the individual. And you know what? Maturity is not measured by age. Maturity is measured by your knowledge and unity of faith in the Son of God. And it's also measured by the fact of how much of the fullness of Christ you display. It's a wonderful phrase and a difficult phrase to understand. If you look at the end of verse 13, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. See, Christ is the fullness of God and is actively filling the church. Talked about that. As the church is filled by Christ, so is its stature. As we become become strong in Christ, as a church we become unified, we, we have a great strength. Maturity becomes evident when we move into the stature and fullness of Christ. As each believer uses their gift and is given it by the measure of Christ, each member fulfills what the body is designed to do. And what is the result? Verse 14 tells us the result of that. When this is in practice, the result is you're no longer children, you're no longer infants. You're no longer tossed to and fro by the waves that are carried about by every wind of doctrine. When you mature, you understand who Christ is and what he's done on your behalf and how you are to live before him. And you're not tossed by the fad of the day. 
you know, tossed around by the new apostolic reformation in this sense. You're not tossed around by human cunning or craftiness and deceitful schemes. When you mature, those things aren't part of you because you're building yourself up and you're speaking the truth in love. This is the key, verse 15. This is what maturity looks like. When we have differences, we speak the maturity in love. Our desire is to grow together in every way and growing into Christ. Our desire is not to remain as infants, but to be mature. You see, when we function well, each part of the body receives this energizing power that needs from the Holy Spirit. And the proper growth of the whole body is in proportion to and adapted to each part. Each part plays its part. Each member has a distinct role. And this unity and diversity provides this growth that can only be explained because Christ is giving the gift. So, how do you choose to use your God-given gifts to equip and grow this body? I want to drill down a little bit here. Drill down to Montmorency Community Church. God has gifted each one of you. If you're a follower of Christ, he has gifted you with a gift to grow this body. Every believer has a gift. Each gift is measured by portion by Christ. And it's there for you to build and grow one another. Christ also gifts leaders for the primary purpose of equipping you for ministry. The leaders don't do all the work. That's what I'm saying. The leaders are there to equip and encourage, disciple, mentor, to point you in the right way, to point you in towards the beauty of Christ and, and the, the glory of God. So as you work together in ministry, whether it's evangelism, whether it's... it's um, serving the community, whether it's equipping and encouraging one another in the faith, that you do it together. And the goal is that through these diverse gifts given that the body is built into maturity, into the full measure of Christ, characterised by love. Don't forget that. You see these last two sections here. Verse 15, rather speaking the truth in love and the end of verse 16, building itself up in love. Love is the, I guess, the display of maturity. It's the display of unity. Why? Because Christ first loved us. Let's pray together as we seek to be a church that strives after maturity, that uses the gifts that God gives each part of this church for his glory. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we uh, do thank you for these words, uh, this letter to the Ephesians. Father, I've just impressed upon our hearts our need to, to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. And Father, it's just wonderful to see that we're not left alone in our calling, but Christ gifts the body with gifts so that we may not be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine or craftiness or human deception, but rather we may grow, we may be built up in our faith. The unity of faith that only comes because Christ unifies us through the gifts he gives. Father, help us to realise the responsibility that we all have gifts and all these gifts are used for your glory, for the work of ministry which you have preordained us to do. So help us, we pray. Help us to cry often out to you for help in these matters. In the powerful name of Christ our Saviour. Amen.